I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 15, 2018. Coming up, a new book explains the amazing challenges of getting a spacecraft to Pluto. Joel Parker will talk with the authors. Pluto was terra incognita, or Pluto incognita. <laughs> That's exactly right. And then, this Friday and Saturday, will be the Gold Lab Symposium at CU Boulder. We'll speak about the symposium with its founder, Larry Gold. One of the speakers on Saturday, he is responsible for most of the drugs that are used today to treat people with HIV and the main drug to treat people with hepatitis C. On July 15, 2015, the New Horizons spacecraft flew past Pluto, completing the over 50-year history of the reconnaissance of the main planets of the solar system. Pluto is so far away, it took nearly 10 years of travel for the spacecraft to reach that distant dwarf planet. But compared to the efforts required to plan for the mission, flying across the solar system was the easy part. From the initial idea for a Pluto flyby to the actual launch took almost 20 years. And now, a new book called Chasing New Horizons, Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto, brings the reader backstage to hear the details and meet the personalities behind building, launching, and flying this audacious mission. The book's authors are Alan Stern and David Grinspoon. Boulder planetary scientist Dr. Stern is the leader the principal investigator of the New Horizons mission. Dr. Grinspoon also is a planetary scientist and astrobiologist, as well as a science writer and communicator. Together, they tell in their book the story of New Horizons and Pluto. They'll be in town this week to read from and sign their book at the Boulder Bookstore this Saturday and the Tattered Cover in Denver on Sunday. How on Earth's own Joel Parker also is a scientist on the New Horizons mission. He had a chance to chat with Alan and David about their book. In today's show, we present part one of that interview. We start with Joel talking with the mission's principal investigator, Alan Stern. Alan, give us some background of Pluto. Just what did we know about Pluto before New Horizons? Before the flyby, we knew enough to know that it was going to be gangbusters. We knew that Pluto had surface markings. We knew that its surface was composed of different kinds of materials, really exotic ices like frozen nitrogen and carbon monoxide and natural gas, methane. We knew that it had one giant satellite and four little ones, that it had a polar cap and an atmosphere, mostly made of nitrogen, the same stuff that we're breathing here on the Earth. We knew a lot of the outline of the Pluto system, some of the details about the atmosphere, but really the bodies, Pluto and its satellites, its moons, was terra incognita, or Pluto incognita. <laughs> That's exactly right. They were really points of light with no surface detail, even if you use the Hubble Space Telescope, because it's so far away, over 3 billion miles. It was just a little smudgy sear in the distance, and we couldn't see any real detail on the surface. We wanted to go from that smudgy dot to a real world. We wanted to fly to Pluto. And I mean, flying to Pluto is challenging enough. In the book, you talk about all the challenges of getting a Pluto mission just funded and on the board. First half of the book covers the, what is it, 16-year history of the mission from idea to development to launch. And the second half then covers the nine and a half years of flight to Pluto. So 
Going back to those roots, Alan, you talk about the Pluto underground. Sounds mysterious. What is that? <laughs> it's an old term. The roots of the mission uh, actually began in the really late 1980s when I was a graduate student at CU here in Boulder. I and a number of young researchers and young professors here at CU, but also scattered around the country, formed a loose confederation we called the Pluto Underground to cajole NASA into studying how to do a Pluto mission. And we named ourselves after a group that had been very successful really early in the 80s called Mars Underground, also based in Boulder, which had uh, succeeded in getting NASA to make Mars a high priority for planetary exploration. So we thought of ourselves as kind of Mars Underground 2.0, uh, <laughs> named Pluto Underground uh, for obvious reasons, because uh, our interest was in going to the other red planet, Pluto. Ah, the underground evokes the underworld, you know, which is very Plutonian in its way. It is. That whole path from getting the mission started is just really amazing. And it was a very long road. What were the major obstacles in getting a Pluto mission approved and funded? I mean, Pluto was the last unexplored planet. It should be like a no-brainer. You would think it's a no-brainer. You know, you would think that the United States space program, which is all about setting records and inspiring people with the first tunes to the moon and the first missions to Mars and Venus and every other planet, all the way up to Neptune by the 80s, would find up to study the still farther planet Pluto in no time at all. But it turned out to be very complicated. There's a lot of pressure in the NASA scientific program for how to use the, the limited budget that uh, NASA has. There are a lot more good ideas around than there is budget. And so the competition is really stiff. And that exploration theme doesn't really cut it in the scientific world. And sometimes you might think NASA would make an exception and just do something for the sheer exploration value. But uh, that's almost never done. You really have to rise to the top as a scientific enterprise and be a more important use of NASA's funds, the limited funds, than other projects. And you have to show that, and you have to get consensus within the scientific community. Frankly, Joel, if we had known in the late 80s how hard it would be and how many reversals there would be and how much intrigue and even a little backstabbing there was going to be, I'm not sure that we would have really taken this on. <laughs> we thought it would be simpler. But as the book describes, it turns out it was kind of a maze. We were wandering around trying different things and getting successes and then defeats and successes and then defeats over and over for more than a decade. The book goes into just great detail of those convoluted paths, and a theme running through the mission was persistence. You didn't give up. You knew this had to be done. That's right. You know, uh, we often were tired of it, tired of the stops and starts and reversals and uh, defeats. But we also knew that if we really put our pencils down and quit, that no one would pick that ball up. It was really up to us. And so we just kept at it. And a lot of people kept at it. In the end, I like to say that the White Hats won. <laughs> <laughs> this had to get done, but it wasn't just for the sake of the science, which in itself should be a good enough justification. But there were timing issues as well in needing to get the mission done by a certain time. What were those constraints? Dave, you want to tackle that one? Yeah, that's one of the things that really comes across when you recapitulate this story as we did in this book. I mean, I, I had followed this story pretty closely 
throughout all these decades that it was happening. And, and I remember thinking along the way many times, this is going to make a great book someday because I can't believe what these guys are going through, especially if it succeeds, it'll make a good book. <laughs> but, but of course, at that time, you know, who knew if it would. But one thing that I became much more aware of as I dove deeper into the story and, and recounted it with Alan and together we put together uh, this narrative was how much time pressure there was at different times on the team. There was so much hurry up and wait where things got canceled. And then all of a sudden they said, the competition's on, but your proposal's due in three months. And these are massive things that usually take years to put together. But on top of all that time pressure that was introduced by politics and bureaucracy, there was this inevitable, unstoppable time pressure that had to do with the realities of uh, the construction of the solar system, of celestial dynamics. If you want to get to Pluto on any reasonable time scale, the way you do it is you go to Jupiter first and you get the gravitational boost, the slingshot effect of Jupiter. In order to do that, Jupiter and Pluto have to be in the right place with respect to Earth. And that only comes around once in a while. So there was this ticking clock once everything got approved, finally, that it had to be launched by this 2006 launch window or that was it. It would just not really be able to go to Pluto in any kind of a reasonable time frame. Beyond that, there were other issues. One of the things that's interesting about the Pluto system, as you mentioned, was that it has an atmosphere. Not only does it have an atmosphere, but the atmosphere is in this complex relationship with the surface, which changes over time rather dramatically. And, and there was this idea that we had to get to Pluto before the atmosphere might collapse entirely, because Pluto is moving away from the sun on its long, long orbit. It's a non-circular orbit. It's been over the last couple of decades moving away from the sun, which means that it gets colder. And as it gets colder, at some point, we think the atmosphere can really dramatically sort of freeze out onto the surface. So there was this sense get to Pluto before that happens because we want to study the atmosphere. If you get there too late, the atmosphere might have disappeared. And then there's this other issue with it that the amount of Pluto's surface, the illuminated portion, slowly decreases as a result of these very long seasonal changes of Pluto. So uh, th there were a number of factors that suggested if we didn't launch by a certain date and if we didn't get to Pluto by a certain time, either we wouldn't be able to get there at all or the ability to really study the Pluto system would be compromised. So there was this racing against the clock in the background of all the challenges that the team was facing as the story went on. That's amazing. It's a drama just not created on Earth, but created by the universe to get things done. And the book really goes into a lot of great detail about all that. I don't think it's too much of a a spoiler to say the mission actually got built and flew by Pluto. So <laughs> saying that, Alan, can you describe the New Horizons spacecraft? Yeah, just a general description of the spacecraft. Because we wanted to fly across the solar system this tremendous distance of 3 billion miles at record speed, we had to build it to be very small and very lightweight compared to past out-of-planet missions like the Voyager. We really are a tiny little spacecraft, barely the size of a desk or a baby grand piano, weighing less than a thousand pounds, and that's everything. The communications gear, the scientific instruments, the onboard computers, the propulsion system, the power system, all of it. And all of it, of course, with backup systems. So there's two of everything, like Noah's Ark. The spacecraft is, um, you know, when you look at it, it's dominated by the uh, roughly 
two-meter diameter dish antenna that we use to communicate back to the Earth. The, the body of it is kind of a triangular shape with a kind of hair curler-looking cylinder that protrudes. It's the nuclear power generator because we're going so far from the sun that we can't use solar power like most other spacecraft. And then the scientific instruments are mounted on the outside. This spacecraft, even though it was a lot smaller than past outer planet missions so it could travel faster, was actually a lot more advanced because it was built with 2000s-era technology. So the scientific instruments had much more firepower, lots more pixels to put on the planet, for example. The onboard systems had many more computers and much more uh, capability that we could uh, shape through software and software improvements as we flew across the solar system. Some degree of intelligence on board so the spacecraft could take care of malfunctions uh, in flight because it's so far from home that some things like a fuel leak or a computer reset just can't wait for help to arrive from Earth many hours later traveling at the speed of light. Really high-tech little spacecraft, but we only sent one, and it absolutely had to work. There was no second bite at that apple when we flew by Pluto. Thanks to Joel Parker for that interview with Alan Stern and David Grinspoon about their book, Chasing New Horizons, inside the epic first mission to Pluto. We'll have a link to the full extended interview podcast online at howonearthradio.org. Alan Stern and David Grinspoon will be talking about their book and the New Horizons mission at the Boulder Bookstore this Saturday, May 19th at 5 p.m., and at Denver's Tattered Cover this Sunday at 2 p.m. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. This Friday and Saturday, you can expand your mind about science and health at the Gold Lab Symposium. The symposium takes place at CU Boulder in Munziger Auditorium. To register or find all the details, do a Google on Gold Lab Symposium. This will be the ninth annual symposium. As a sneak preview, this year some of the world's great scientists and thought leaders will share their perspectives on science and health and the health of science politics. For more, here's the founder of the symposium, Larry Gold, sharing what the title is for this year's event. The intersections between health and policy. That is a complex area. (laughs) You think? (laughs) You know, it's so funny. I've been doing, this is the ninth one. The first year, it was science aimed at health. We encouraged everyone to speak English, which many did. Well, that's a priority for you, to have speakers who can speak to the most well-educated person in the audience and at the same time speak to anybody who comes in a way that person can understand. That's right. That's the goal, a goal, one of the goals. What a wonderful idea that you can learn science that's spoken about in English without needing a special jargon to follow. Well, you believe that. You believe that if people are educated and they learn more, they can live a better life. I do believe that, I think. How are you doing that this year? Well, what's changed and why the title is so funny is that I've ended up coming to a sad conclusion for me. In these nine years, I've concluded that the rate-limiting thing for better health for all is policy, not science. 
that first year, David Snow gave a talk, and he said, you know, it takes 17 years between when something is ready for prime time. He said this. He was the head of Medco. He was the CEO of Medco. A giant pharmacy company. A PBM, a pharmaceutical benefit manager. And they were merged now with Express Scripts. And David came, and he gave this remarkable talk about how important it is to realize that the real gap in health and wellness is political and sociological. And I thought that was silly. I hoped it was wrong, and I was wrong to not appreciate it right away. So I have, finally. And so this year is kind of 50-50 policy things and science-y things. You know, I can get out my iPhone, and I can look at it and know that I'm holding more computing power in my hand than scientists had an entire room or a building for sending the spacecraft to the moon. We've made huge advances in these things that we can do technologically at the same time that the average expected lifespan in the United States has gone down. It's just barely gone down in the last year or two. But you see, the reason that lifespan has gone down has to do with policy. 100%. Of course, yes. It has to do with educating people with bad information. The opioid epidemic, choices that lead to diabetes and obesity, those are the things that evidently are driving this. I've read some of that. I think that some fraction of our problem is that we do a very, very bad job at health care for the disadvantaged, that poverty plays a bigger role in us being 17th or whatever the number is in longevity with all of the fancy drugs we have in the whole world. There are 300-plus countries. We're 17th in that one metric, age of death. There are countries where people live a few years longer than us who spend a fraction of what we spend, but manage to give health and wellness. And that's a policy question. A cousin of mine and my wife's has a terrible disease. And I knew enough about that disease to know where she could get whatever help was possible. Can you name the disease? I can't. The disease was pancreatic cancer. That's what killed Steve Jobs. Yes, although he died from the less lethal form of that disease because he did a macrobiotic diet rather than getting real help. I'm showing my bias here, okay? With all of the smartest people in the world talking to him, he still did that. But my my friend, I'm not going to tell you who it was, of course, in the end had a chance to be treated aggressively by a new kind of therapy, and all she needed was to have a test done that would have uh, given her the right to that drug from her insurance company. I had to help that happen, and all of my smart friends who know that field really well. So you can't democratize anything if you, if you need help from an insider. Insiders are not the game here. That's a good point. And how expensive was that drug? I don't know. Was it $200,000 for one pop? Was it $200,000 for the month or the year? Because that's typically the cost of those kinds of drugs. We all have uh, experiences about that. So let me tell you, one of the speakers who's coming this year on Saturday is a friend named Ray Shanazi. 
he is responsible for most of the drugs that are used today to treat people with HIV. And the main drug that's used today to treat people with hepatitis C. So the company that I know pretty well, called Gilead, bought that drug from Ray's company. I think the list price for that drug is $80,000 for a course of treatment. It may be lower, but that's what it was originally. If the average person who gets treated is 40 years old, I don't know the data, we'll learn that from Ray's talk, it's a course of treatment of a couple of weeks that cures the disease in 98% of the people that get the drug. So in my mind, that price for another 20 productive years contributing to the per capita GDP as a living, healthy person, if you amortize that $80,000 over 20 or 25 years, it's a few thousand dollars a year. And and when Gilead priced that drug, this is five years ago or so, they took a lot of criticism for that pricing, but on a value basis and a fairness basis, they were providing life to the people who were cured of hepatitis C. You're a person who has developed drugs yourself, and you have a great confidence in that side of medicine and science. I do, actually. I'm a real believer in science, yes. <laughs> Looking at the subtitles for your Intersections Between Health and Policy, which is the overall topic for the Gold Lab Symposium, which is Friday, May 18th, and Saturday, May 19th, at CU's Munziger Auditorium in Boulder. The subtitles are very interesting. The first one is Scaling Our Thinking from Politics to Health, followed by Are Tumors Conscious? Do you think they are? No, but I think they're nasty. (laughs) There are two people in that session who know an awful lot about how cancers grow. In the first half of that session, on the afternoon of Friday, May 18th, is a philosopher who's written a huge amount what it means to be conscious. That's Dan Dennett from Tufts. And then Craig Mundy is going to talk about, you know, artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff. Kind of a setup for how a tumor can just invade your body and grow. You know, you have an immune system that ought to take care of that but it doesn't. There is a belief that everyone has very small cancers that are being held in check by something called immune surveillance. And the tumors we see are tumors that have evaded that. They kind of behave as though if something over there is going to kill them, they'll choose a different kind of biochemistry to avoid being killed. So they're very clever, if not conscious. There's also the author of a book, David Quammen, who's a science writer. The title that he's given is Carl Woes and the Non-Tree of Life. Carl Woes, he's the unsung hero that figured out that there's more to life than bacteria and us. Carl Woes was my mentor. Carl died of pancreatic cancer about four years ago or so. He was an unbelievable scientist. 
He was a classic bench scientist, was my understanding. He figured out so many things about the tree of life. He figured out how to figure out the tree of life. He started by understanding that there were three branches to the tree of life, not two. This came as a substantial shock to everybody at the time. This was 1977. He always was a deep thinker. And I met this guy, David, and asked him if he would come and talk about this because, in a sense, a little biography of a great scientist ought to be useful to people in the room. Can I tell you about the last two people on Saturday afternoon? If you read The New Yorker, you will have read 300 articles by Calvin Trillin. He's thought about politics, and he thinks about food. And one of the things we always try to do with these things is eat well, have good lunches, good dinners. And Calvin Trillin had rules for eating. This funny man, never eat in a restaurant that revolves. (laughs) So he's going to be wonderful. And then after we get done laughing with this guy, then we're going to end up hearing at the end from Sarah Gray. She had twins, and when she was about to have those twins, they discovered that one of those twins was not going to make it. And they worked out a way to use the useful parts of the child who was going to die to help other kids live. Larry Gold is the founder of Gold Lab Symposium, which takes place this Friday and Saturday at CU Boulder in Munzinger Auditorium. Register online and find out more by doing a Google on Gold Lab Symposium. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Additional contributions by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Music from Outer Space and former Boulder guitarist Ryan Judd. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.